Well, greeting Exponential family. Uh, welcome to the Hub for this special edition of the book tour for the Starfish and the Spirit, which releases tomorrow. So you want to be sure to be able to pick that up. It releases tomorrow if you've not already pre-ordered it or had an author hand deliver it to you, like I had the privilege of, uh, of getting. Um, you want to be sure and pick that up. But uh, my name is Bill Kokenauer. I'm part of the Exponential team, and I am uh, genuinely excited to be here with an amazing group of, of authors and leaders, and uh, just want to introduce you to him here, uh, Lance Ford, uh, author of a number of books, including this one, um, and a, a practitioner of, of everything that they're writing about. Lance, tell us a little bit about where you're at and what you're doing. Well, uh, I live up in the Panhandle of Florida, uh, lived in Kansas City for a long time, moved here about four years ago. And this has just been a pretty good spot where my wife can be close to, to her folks. And, and pretty much what I do, I can do most anywhere anyway. I pretty much do coaching, consulting, writing, that type of stuff, and uh, growing old-er in my spare time. <laughs> All right. Hey, Lance, tell me about what you guys are kickstarting, though, in Alabama. Well, oh, well, yeah, well, we're going to be, uh, which is crazy, uh, crazy crazy story. So we planted a church in the northwestern suburbs of St. Louis 26 years ago um, with a couple who are our best friends. Our kids grew up together. They're really our soulmates. We're joining them again. Uh, we'll be moving next year to uh, the Huntsville, Alabama area to uh, really start uh, basically like an underground network, uh, microchurch network. And with our with our old compadres, 26 years later, we're doing it again, but we're doing it the way that we said for the last 15, 20 years, if we ever did it again, <laughs> here's how we'd do it. So right you know, just give part it another of what, shot. Part of the genesis of this book. It, it is. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. We also have uh, with us Rob Wagner, who uh, Rob is one of the founders of the Kansas City Underground and uh, part of Disciples Made and uh, uh, also a, a prolific thought leader. And, uh, and author. Uh, and Rob, good to have you with us here today. To tell, for those that don't know, tell us a little bit about the Kansas City Underground and what you're doing there. Yeah, we are one of the sister networks in the Underground Network that was started by Tampa. And uh, the way we were organized, we're a mission agency that basically sends and supports missionaries and missionaries doing the gospel work, see microchurches emerge for new disciples. And then we organize those microchurches into decentralized networks where governing elders emerge. And we want to fill our city with the beauty, justice, and good news of Jesus. We want a missionary in every street and a microchurch in every network of relationships. And we also have with us Myron Pierce. And this is, this is fun for me. Myron and I haven't had a chance. We've been kind of on different things and haven't had a chance to, to actually connect together on something like this in a while. So it's a uh, it's good for me to, to be with Myron. Myron's church planner, pastor, author, entrepreneur. Um, and one of the things I like is Myron has a call in his life to plant a hope-filled, diverse church in every inner city. In mm. the world. Um, just a little dream there. <laughs> <laughs> Myron, tell us a little bit. Give us a little bit of background on your story for those of you that, that for people that may not know you. Yeah, um, well, from inner city Omaha, Nebraska, um, grew up here, grew up in poverty. Both parents were disenfranchised and dysfunctional and uh, in all manner of uh, drugs and et cetera. And uh, it was that perfect storm that uh, I was born into that ultimately led me to prison for a significant amount of time. And, uh, found Jesus uh, in a 
in a bullpen, man, in a in a jail cell, and uh, no preacher, no nothing, just me and Jesus. And uh, through that, I really found found my personal calling to ultimately see every inner city experience uh, the hope that we talk about and and leaders emerging and churches thriving uh, so that the inner city could have a chance at experiencing hope. So it's been fun. Uh, It's been fun hanging around Exponential um, and uh, being a part of Exponential family. And and so, man, just a pleasure to, um, to be a part. And then also, man, to connect with uh, the Casey Underground, um, very, very aligned with the underground, um, the justice and beauty gospel. Um, I mean, I've, I've just drunk the Kool-Aid, man. So um, just love, love being a part. Yeah. Well, it's good to have you on the call and, and good to have like your input here and kind of some of the principles they have in the book and what that looks like and how that plays out kind of in, in real life. So uh, yeah, I look forward to that. But d- just to get started, hey, Rob, could you kind of unpack the central metaphor of the starfish have my starfish here i'm actually gonna uh, hand that over nice. to, i'm gonna hand that over to lance okay. I, I like your your starfish it's yeah. a very yeah, well well played bill yeah. starfish. <laughs> very good yeah. well m- many of uh I, I would imagine many of the viewers today have read the starfish and the spider a book that ori brothman came out with about 15 16 years ago a new york Times bestseller uh i know i've been in the in the libraries and offices of of you know hundreds of pastors over the years and the majority of them have that book on their shelf so the metaphor that that ori presented in that book was uh a metaphor of centralized and decentralized leadership and um so the spider and the starfish uh are two uh, organisms that that look very much alike uh, from a distance anyway. So you've got a body and then you've got, uh, legs that protrude out. Um, but they're very different in the, in the way that they function in the way that they're made up. So if you cut the head off of a spider, it'll die. If you chop a starfish into, they'll actually multiply. And the reason is, is because all of the, all of the intelligence and all the brain power in the spider is in its head, but all of the brain power, in a starfish is throughout its body. It is a neurosystem. And so actually the head is in the body of the starfish, which is very much uh, a really good metaphor for the body of Christ because the head Jesus is spread throughout the body and the intelligence of Jesus is throughout. We have the mind of Christ. Now, normally we take that scripture and we individualize it, but that's a body text. We have the mind of Christ, right? And so it's a picture of distributed uh, intelligence and decentralized leadership versus centralized leadership. And we see, we've seen it over the years. We've seen it over the last few months. And unfortunately, we're most likely to see it again in a few months. There will be a well-known Christian leader that falls either through sin or through bullying or through domination or whatever it might be. And unfortunately, so often in those leaders lead like spiders. And so when they go down, their organizations go down, their organizations go away. Uh, well, the church that Jesus built is much stronger than that because he's throughout it, but we have to move over into more decentralized uh, systems and ways of leading, especially in the day and time that we're living now. And I'm right. not telling pastors on here anything post-COVID right now, or we're still in COVID, 
uh, that there is a need for a new type of leadership for the body of Christ to be set free to do the, the, the great things that Jesus calls us to do to bring him glory. Amen. You actually met the author of that book, right? And it, that kind yeah. of that's yeah, no, it's a, yeah, that's a good point. told Ori, like, we got to fix your book. There's a lot of problems with your book. <laughs> yeah, we got to fix Ori. Here's what's crazy is Alan Hirsch, Alan and I met uh, Ori back in 2000, I'm wanting to say 2006 or 2007. We were at a conference with Neil Cole in Long Beach. And um, so we hung out with Ori there, became friends. Actually, we had Ori speak at the, our centralized conferences that we used to do. So we've really stayed close it would develop a, a relationship. So um, when I started thinking about this book, I contacted Ori and Ori really helped on the project. And then the Lord just definitely spoke to me, said Rob was supposed to be into it. And when Rob jumped in, the IQ jumped up about 30 points. And then through actually through a word from the Lord from Rob's mom told Rob, Alan Hirsch is supposed to be in on that project. So it ended up being Alan, Rob, and I, and then Ori wrote the foreword. And he did more than write the foreword. He really coached us for a year and a half, wouldn't you say, Rob? Yeah. He actually named the book, in fact, too. And he's actually a contributor on the podcast. If you guys yes, yes. go to our YouTube account, our last podcast that dropped last week, Ori's in that. And he's been a very faithful friend. He's on a very interesting spiritual journey himself. Yeah. Um, it's We've had some really amazing conversations. Uh, that's cool. Well, th th there's three primary sections in the book uh, can, and we've covered the, the first two, but can you kind of recap those? So it come, as we come into the, the third section here. Yeah, I'll take the first you go part. With the first one, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> take the Second one. So the first part of the book is entitled reimagining church. And uh, we start with this vision from Ephesians chapter one of uh, Jesus, who is filling everything every way. And his body is the fullness of him. It fills everything every way. So using the analogy of, let's say, an aquarium, think about your city as an aquarium. And Jesus, the intent is that it would be filled with the fullness of Jesus. Everything that Jesus is touching, saturating, immersing every single part of that city or region. And we are his body, the fullness of him. So we get to manifest the fullness of Jesus. And what we try to do in this first section is, Okay, we have to reimagine the church as a decentralized network of, of missionaries and leaders and micro expressions of the church, and then hubs that are equipping the, the missionaries and the leaders and the micro churches, and, and then seeing our mission not in terms of the old scoreboard, uh, but a new scoreboard of how are we actually filling this city with the beauty, justice, and good news of Jesus? Are we multiplying disciples and missional leaders and microchurches and networks and hubs to fill this city? And so we offer, um, so I think, what will be hopefully some provocative ideas on exactly what is a movement? How do you measure a movement? What are the different types of mobilization pathways? And we theorize there's two that we need. We, there's two different types of mobilization pathways we need to get to movement. Um, and it's and it's very practical. So it's a very high level vision for what it means to be church as a movement. But we're trying to give some very kind of grass level tools and dashboards. And that's what's the interesting part of that first section. Um, propose a dashboard for the church to consider. And that's the heart of the that's really what we're shooting for. Church is a missional movement. Right. And we have to stop thinking about it in terms of places and programs and particular professionals and 
in terms of God's people filling every corner of culture, every sphere of society. So if we're going to see churches movement, there's a certain form of leadership that is absolutely critical in order for that to happen, which leads to the second section of the book. Yeah, so we really uh, are convinced that we need a new form of leadership and that the majority of our leadership models and forms have really come out of the industrial uh, revolution uh, from the late 1800s throughout the, the 20th century. And most of those are very hi- uh, hierarchical. Um, I call it hard hierarchy, uh, where, whereby most of our moves and ethos of leadership means that there's got to be one boss at the top and think spider once again. Okay. So one boss at the top, that's the smartest one in the room over the last 20, 25 years throughout the church, we've kind of made it too. So usually you've got a senior pastor and an executive pastor. These are the two smartest people. They call all the shots and they tell everybody else what to do. And in reading the New Testament, we're seeing that a lot of the modes and a lot of the, even the, um, the, 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 the characteristics of leaders as it's met out through hard hierarchy and paternalism, it doesn't meet up with the character of Jesus. And, uh, when Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 20, he says, you know, the Gentiles exercise dominion over one another, but it will not be that way among you. You know, the one that will be the first will be the, be the servant. You know, if you want to be greatest, you'll become a slave. And the sad thing is it very much is that way among us right now. And so uh, as we look throughout the new Testament, we're seeing there's a much different way to lead. And we definitely feel like uh, a big part of that is the Ephesians four structure or Ephesians four giftings of apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher. But those fivefold gifts, the apest that's become very much in our nomenclature over the last several years uh, in the church. Most of you are familiar with with those terms. Um, We can't lock in the old systems of leading just with those giftings and expect different results because you can lead spidery or spiderly through a pest. Okay. Well, we want to lead star starfishy. Okay. Through a pest. We want to do it with the character and the modes of Jesus. And we think that there are organic systems that can bring that about. And so this section, we talk about um, the processes, the practices, the micro agreements, that help teams actually live this way of leading. And we call it an organic hierarchy. And it really is a beautiful thing. And we've got tons of examples, tons of stories of this actually, actually working. So uh, that's the, that's kind of the middle, middle part of the book. Yeah, that's excellent. And for those of you that uh, did not see one or both of those two, um, there, Brooks is going to put the, um, the link to those videos in there so that you can uh, go back and, and get those. One thing I do want to know real quick. So Carrie Latticer hosted those two. Did she host those two because I wasn't available or am I hosting this one because she's not available? Like who... Um, I, 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 yeah, it's, uh, I have, uh, I'm kind of, it's breaking up right now. I didn't, I didn't hear what you said. Phil. Uh, Carrie, Carrie is amazing. Carrie, <laughs> Carrie is, she is, is truly an amazing leader and grateful for her. And I'm glad to, uh, to sit in for her. We're honored you know to have you. Well, uh-huh. I, I want to get to this, uh, this third section, a culture of multiplying disciples, because uh, like we were talking uh, just before we, we went live with the webinar, th- this could have been a book by itself. I mean, the, 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 the meat of this, I think, it just hits so much of what I hear uh, denominational network leaders talking about. And, and uh, just curious, why, why is, 
why is this the last section? Why is this the longest section? You know, it, it, well, you, I mean, if you only knew the story of how this book came together. <laughs> <laughs> well, honestly, Bill, um, you know, disciple making is the uh, irreplaceable core task of the church. And um, we, we knew that this was going to be the most significant part of the book because everything rises and falls on your ability to make disciples. Mm-hmm. Actually, when you work your way through our book, you realize um, this is about disciple making ground up. And part of the problem uh, that we've had that's kept us from seeing churches movement is you have leaders in the church who've never been discipled or discipled anybody. And, it, and it's, it's a very odd situation that we have um, churches filled with leaders that have not actually experienced the core task of the church. Mm. Um, so that explains really why it's the biggest part, but we did it sequentially because, you know, starting with that vision of church's movement is so compelling. Like that Ephesians one vision, there's never going to be a better vision for the church. And then we move to the leadership because it's a different style of leadership that's required to get there. But it's also a felt need with a lot of church leaders. It's like, I need to know how to lead this thing. But what we're really hoping is like, let's get you into the last half of this book because this is actually where it starts. Yeah. So we wrote it with a certain logic because we thought it'd be kind of a smoother journey for the reader. But in terms of actually building a starfish movement, you've got to start with disciple making. So I'm going to throw out to Myron and Lance. Any thoughts that you would add to that? Yeah, I think um, this this is okay. So exponential, we talk a lot about level one, two, three, four, and five, and and I don't know if anyone has ever asked you this, like, you know, man, how do you do what you do? There's, I see you do so much. And I couldn't do what you do. Maybe not necessarily with church planting or leadership or anything, but maybe maybe it's I don't know. But I, I get a lot of times people say, how do you do this and do this and this? And all of a sudden it dawned on me. It dawned on me. When people are finding tension with what level you're currently on it's because they don't have the, they haven't crossed a threshold of that type of capacity. Hmm. And if we're feeling uncomfortable with the idea that our Western way of hierarchy is incomplete and inconsistent with the new covenant, if we're feeling that tension, it's an invitation that God wants to increase our capacity, right? And so when we're talking about disciple making, um, I sent Robin and our friend Brian a, a text yesterday or a message yesterday that Barna, Barna put out this, um, this update on the church. And, and it, the update is, um, have you heard the question that, that was posed for the survey is, have you heard of the Great Commission? And 51% of the church said no. 51%. So I think what That's we're crazing. Yeah. So what we're, what we're posing today is, and I love the way the book ends with disciple making and discipleship, because that says something is wrong with the current system. 
that this book advocates that we address. And I just think it's, it's a pathway towards that Ephesian one mandate. 51% is amazing, but not necessarily surprising either from what we've said. Yeah. Well, hey, I, I want to get in. There are three starfish in this uh, section. And if you guys don't mind, I'd like to start with the disciple making ecosystem starfish. And uh, if you could, uh, who, who's uh, Lance, are you going to unpack that one for us? Now we're going to let, uh, I think, I think Rob was ready to unpack okay. it. Yeah. All right. Leading out on that one. Um, so again, the book is a series of seven starfish. And what we're trying to do is make portable kind of the key, like Lance said, the key practices, postures, procedures, and so forth uh, of decentralized leadership and disciple making that will actually lead to church as a movement. So um, this particular starfish, the disciple making ecosystem starfish, uh, it provides a framework of five essential elements that are needed to design a disciple making ecosystem. So think about it this way. Uh, the, the starfish is the perfect metaphor for a disciple because every disciple is designed to be a disciple who can make disciples. So when Jesus says, go make disciples, that's what's implicit in it. Um, just like every starfish can reproduce a starfish, but starfish can only survive and thrive in the right ecosystem. You're not going to find a starfish nestled at the top of a mountain. <laughs> You're not going to find a starfish in the Mojave Desert, right? They're, they're they survive and inhabit the oceans of the world, in particular, like the coastal sections, because the right elements are there for them to thrive. And what's interesting is in that shallow ocean ecosystem, the starfish is what's called a keystone species. In other words, they're needed. They, they have to thrive and reproduce so that that shallow ocean ecosystem can actually survive. And in, in God's kingdom, uh, and in the church, multiplying disciples are a keystone species. Like we need them to thrive and reproduce. And when they do, they actually strengthen that kingdom ecosystem. And the shalom of God then starts filling homes and neighborhoods and cities and states and nations and eventually the whole earth. It's going to happen. But starfish will only survive and thrive in the right ecosystem. So an ecosystem uh, it's a community of interacting organisms living together inside of a physical environment. And of course, there's different ecosystems like uh, forests, grasslands, deserts, etc. And you have to have the right elements mixed at the right levels for the ecosystem to be healthy. And what's really encouraging is actually small changes in an ecosystem can make a big difference. I saw this documentary a National Geographic about when wolves were re reintroduced to Yellowstone. And I don't know if you guys heard the story. It's amazing. It's amazing. Like they, the, the, uh, basically, um, what was happening is they needed to reintroduce the wolves to deal with the rising elk population. But when they reintroduced the wolves, it transformed this entire section of Yellowstone Park. And they weren't ready for the kind of far-reaching ripple effects and the indirect consequences of what happened. But like, I mean, it was crazy, like beaver population sur you know, surged and then they made dams which made new rivers and then new lakes and then there were new tree stands and the new bird populations and new wildfire. It was like Narnia, was like crazy. Oh. Very quickly too. It yeah. literally changed the course of the river, they said. It's amazing. And what we're saying is with, with a few small strategic changes, you can actually see really dramatic results. 
So what we get at with this starfish is basically five different elements of a disciple making ecosystem. And I'm just going to hit these real quickly. Um, and then I'd love for Myron kind of unpack how they're working on this. And we could tell some stories, Lance and I too, from our context. But so here are the five elements. First of all is the vision question. So this is answering the simple question, what is your definition of a disciple? And it, think about it this way. If you were to go to, let's say, a widget factory and you're with the CEO of widgets, you know, incorporated, and you asked him, hey, can I see a widget? And he was like, a widget? I don't even know what that is. You'd go, it's probably not a good widget factory. <laughs> like, you can't tell me what a widget is. And yet, I've asked this question to literally hundreds of church leaders. Like, what's your definition of a disciple? And it's amazing how many times there's sort of like a stunned silence. Like, whoa, no one's even ever really asked me that question. And then typically one or two responses happens. One is they start sort of like talking about the programs and the things that they're running, which we know uh, if everything gets labeled discipleship, like, so everything we do is discipleship, then it's probably true that nothing actually is discipleship. <laughs> or they get into like a dissertation. And what we're advocating for in this book is, do you have a definition of disciple making that's biblical? So you have to have core theological convictions about what it means to be a disciple. Is it robust? If people live into this definition, will they look like the disciples in the New Testament? Is it simple? Could a 10-year-old understand it? Is it reproducible? Can an ordinary person articulate this and share it with someone else? And is it compelling? And the reason this is so important is you have to begin with the end in mind. Like you have to design your disciple-making environments and tools around what it means to actually be a disciple, which then leads to the second question, which is what we call the voice question. And the voice question is simply asking this question, who listens to you and is ready to respond? So one of the challenges with the prevailing model is a lot of times we're trying to do discipleship in a corporate way from a platform that's kind of an all skate. Like, hey, we have a discipleship program. We want all of you to get into it. We meet on Thursday nights. Um, and it's just not the way Jesus did it. If you think about how Jesus like, what was his criteria for inviting people into discipleship? Well, it was very personal. You know, he had, the father gave him 12 names. So it's this spirit-led, very personal, very relational. Um, he, he had this sort of interesting selection criteria of both readiness. Are they, are they open? Are they available? Are they teachable? Are they responsive? But also spirit-led revelation. Again, the father's giving him these names. And it's sort of a high invite, high challenge. Like Jesus is saying, it's highly invitational. I'm going to pour my life into you. We're going to actually do life together. And it's high challenge. It's like, hey, leave your nets. And so this particular way of inviting people into discipleship is not often practiced in the prevailing model. And it's why we get low bar results. Uh, if we do a catacall approach, it's not in the way of Jesus. The third one then, so it starts with that vision. What's the definition of disciple? How are we inviting people? Like who's ready to listen and how are we inviting them? The third one is the vocabulary question. So this is the question of what language and tools are we using? So Jesus had a particular vocabulary 
especially if you think about Jesus' ability to turn a phrase and seed language or what he did with the parables, those parables are like these portable tools that work on people like a slow release pill. And then he had certain tools that he teached that he uh, taught them, like particular ways of praying and living, how he used the table. I mean, I could go on and on and we do in the book, but every, um, every congregation or movement has to begin to ask like, what's our disciple making vocabulary and begin to audit their language and basically create a lexicon. Uh, if you hung around at the Kansas city underground for one week, you'd probably pick up about a hundred phrases that you heard multiple times because it's our disciple making lexicon and then tools. And uh, we talk in the book about how there's informal tools and formal tools and a continuum of tools. And you have to know what tools they have at what point in the journey. And then the next question is the vehicles question, which is what are the relational environments that we use? Um, and Jesus had three, he had 12, he had 72, he had the crowds. How do we utilize these different social spaces? How do we inform them with our voice, with our, with our vocabulary, with our vision, so that we have highly potent uh, disciple-making environments that are relational? And then the next one is the voyage question, which is what's the journey and the destination? Uh, and so there are stages. The Bible talks about being a babe in Christ and a child and basically a young adult and a parent and an elder. People need different content at different points of, of the journey. And we have to help people understand the journey they're on and what content they need at that particular point in time. So as people begin to look at these five elements and over time begin to work out um, their answers into workable solutions, you begin to create a disciple-making ecosystem uh, that's so conducive to disciples um, being transformed and multiplied. So that's a quick flyover of um, a, a revolutionary journey that a congregation or a movement needs to go through to really become potent when it comes to being a disciple-making movement. Oh, that's great. And, and Myron, I, I'd like to get your kind of your thoughts here and, and what this looks like uh, in just, you know, even your hope dealer pathway, you know, what, what it looks like for the, the hope dealers, your training and tools and language. And I want to tell everybody too, uh, this is your opportunity to ask them questions. So feel free to enter your questions in the chat and Brooks will get those to us. And we want to get your questions answered as well. But uh, yeah, Myron, what does this look like for you? Man, I think Rob, Man, nailed it. I, I, let me let let us let's address the tension that leaders are currently feeling and will feel on the replay. Um, we just want to acknowledge that that's that's a real thing wherever you are, right? The other thing that on another call a couple of days ago that dawned on me was this: look at the context of Jesus. Look at the context. The Roman the Roman Empire is in play, right? One system is at work, the other, so, and he's within that system. And then not just is he within that system, but he's within a system of, 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 of being a rabbi. So those are two real systems at play. And then you have the kingdom of God, him as the son of God, and then he has this cadre. So we wanna encourage, I wanna encourage you that you may be in a Roman empire system. Like, um, you may be in a rabbinical, what, you, you know what I mean? Um, but just know that this ecosystem that Rob just got through laying out, um, if we frame it 
as a journey of questions. You know, to begin asking the question like, okay, what does it mean to be a disciple? There is no other question that needs to be answered right now but that first question. There you go. Because like for us, we've been on that journey. We've been on that journey of what does it mean to be a disciple? And it's, it's been cool because um, like if I'm, I'm, if I'm with one of my guys, one of my guys are like literally out there hanging out. Um, we would say I'm from I'm from the projects. I'm a I'm an ex gangbanger. And so honestly, man, one way of saying it for us, like what is it what it like it means to be a gangster for Jesus, man. Like if there's any I, I would put up any game against any any church and would be willing to pay that we have the best disciple making engine put us up against any organization because we've clearly identified what it means to be a gangster, what it mean, what the mission is about, who we are. And so this really set me up in our, in our, in our church to begin to ask some questions and we've landed on, Hey, you know what? To be a disciple means to be a hope dealer Come on. because we've realized that Jesus is the hope of the world. Paul tells Timothy, always be ready to give a reason, reason for the hope that lies within you. Jesus is known as the hope of glory. Now, these three, these three things remain faith, hope, and love. Jesus actually died in the middle. So we recognize that hope really is an agent that God wants to use to help us see the, the, the hope of glory himself. And so like that's really been instrumental for us in our context and then to be able to 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 help our people be informed by like there are strands to what it means to be a disciple or a hope dealer and for us we want our 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 hope dealers to realize that there really is a theology to being a hope dealer that there's really a philosophy of being a hope dealer and then there's a methodology, right, of being a hope dealer. And so I think as churches can nail that down, it will help inform the ecosystem. I think that's the tweak as we talked about the wolves in Yellowstone Park. Like that really is the tweak right there. Um, and, and, and we don't have to. Uh, so let me give you a really, really small tweak if you're a lead pastor. Go from 20 hours of sermon prep to two hours of sermon prep. And then use that other 18 hours to build relationships, give opportunities to people to hang out with you so that they can, so that they can have experiences that lead them to see who God is. That is like one of the greatest things I've ever done. This, and it's, it's not a big one, right? And, and I know we were out in California and I said that in it. I, I, re think, I remember that. I remember it, that. It was like, like it freaked some people out. But like, let's be honest, God, like God, our job description. Let's look at our job description. Our job description is Ephesians 4. And, and anything outside of that um, upsets the ecosystem. For example, you may have for us like another another clear example. I mean, give me an example. Outside this door right now, 
is one of our hope dealers, one of our guys, right? 10 years in the penitentiary for pimping. Hmm. He gets out. We cross paths. We used to be in the light. We used to be in that life together, right? He finds out I'm in the hood dealing hope. Went from dope dealer to hope dealer. I got another one. Y'all, I am not playing. Look, this is crazy. This look at this guy right here. This is another guy. This is crazy. Like they're all coming down. This is crazy that they're coming down here like this. <laughs> so we so we start hanging out. And all of a sudden, we entered into this disciple-making relationship. And then we we deploy one of our our missional missional ventures, our impact ventures, where we're like helping to like help entrepreneurs become gangbang, turn gangbangers into entrepreneurs. And now all of a sudden, this guy is not just like being discipled, he's become a leader. And now he's going out into the mission field in the inner city and we're using the platform of entrepreneurship to impact people and disciple them. And it is crazy. They're like all out here right now. It's like a room full of like ex-pimps and gangbangers. And it all started because I decided that the church is not an event to attend, it's a movement to be engaged with, Amen. Yeah. right? So, yeah, man. That's so good, that's so good. Yeah, I remember when you said that in California and what a great place for a pastor to start. I've wondered if, if the business of the church has gotten to the point where a pastor has no time to have meaningful relationships with people that don't know Jesus and time to invest in people to just, you know, the relational kind of discipleship, then the business of the church is there's something wrong. There's something wrong there. Lance or Rob, anything that you want to want to add? I mean, to that? I just think what, what Myron is saying there is, is so potent at so many levels because we all know, uh, and like, let's just take Myron. I mean, Myron is a gifted brother and he's got charisma. He's, he's magnetic. People would show up just to hear him preach. He, he could build a big church on preaching. It is so possible, and we've seen it over and over and over. You can build a big church without making one disciple, but you can't make a group of disciples that won't become the church. Amen. And, you know, we've got to learn that finally and finally for all. And, it, it, you know, it is almost crazy that we legitimately even have to have today's conversation that we're, we're still having to say, now, what's a disciple? You know, I mean, we're still it's needful. This this is needful. Uh, these books that are being written and and conferences that Exponential puts on and other you know groups put on. It is needed, you know, but it's kind of like Paul said, hey, by now you ought to be teachers, but I'm still having to give you milk. We're still having to relearn the foundational principles. And if you look at the Gospels, there's not a whole lot of content in the Gospels. There's not a lot there. First of all, we've got synoptic gospel, so pretty much everything's said four times. But if you were just to distill it all down, there's not a lot there, right? Jesus is like, this is enough. This is enough. It's, you know, and then we come in and we write books this thick, right? You know? <laughs> so it's like, man, if we would just try it, Jesus's way, it probably would work. And I think what Myron's just described, and when he's sitting there looking over his shoulder at a room full of, you know, former gangbangers and pimps, et cetera, 
you know, it's pretty much like the crew that Jesus gathered together and changed the world with. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was, I was thinking this and I, I want to get to this next starfish too. I want to make sure we have time to, to cover this one, but I was thinking of the parallel uh, with this book. One of the things that we talk about at exponential, when you, we get to level three, to move, you know, a lot of times when people recognize that magnet level three, that many of the things that make your great level three church become the very things that keep you from moving on to level four and five. You know, the question is, well, what, do, what do I do? And we, we talk about five things. And I was just thinking about that relative to your church. The first one is hero to hero maker, which you're talking about the leader in here. The second one is changing the scorecard. You know, how, how do you really, you know, define success? The third one, a shift in the opportunity or, or shift in the expectation for every believer. You know, we've way undersold what it means to be a Christ follower. And and then the, the fourth is a shift in the opportunity for every believer and then the operating system. It's interesting that the parallels to that. I was just thinking about that as you guys were talking. But um, yeah, I do. I want to move on to this uh, next starfish, uh, the disciple making uh, ingredients in the starfish purpose. Um, who's uh, who's going to unpack that one for us first? I can kick that off. All right. So we painted this larger picture of the ecosystem where you've got the vision, you've got the voice, you've got the vocabulary, you've got the vehicles. So the vehicles are the relational environments. That's how Jesus did it. Uh, he had three, he had 12, he had 72. They were nested kind of like a, those Russian nesting dolls, right? The three was in the 12, the 12 was within the 72. And every church needs relational vehicles, Um you know, the primary relational vehicle most churches have created is small groups and small groups were designed uh, for kind of like relational flypaper. We got a lot of people coming. We don't want them going out the back door. We want them to stick. So they were they were created for community and assimilation. Um, and actually, small groups do a really great job at that. Um, what they're not good at is mission or disciple making. And I think that's where a lot of pastors feel that angst where it's like, I've got people in groups, but it doesn't really seem like it's leading to much transformation or multiplication or new disciples out of lostness. And I, and what we propose in this book is, okay, let's say you've got a relational environment of 12 people. What are the ingredients you got to put in there? So it actually causes people to be transformed and make new disciples. So think of it like if you want a cake, you got to put the right ingredients in, right? What are the core ingredients you need to put into a relational environment. So it actually makes disciples that makes disciples. So again, we're trying to do some deep theological reflection, but bring it down to a very simple level. So it's five ingredients and you have to have all five of these present and they have to be at the right amount. Cause if you have too much of one and too little of the other, it's not going to, it's not going to turn out right. My, one of my daughters made a, uh, chocolate chip cookies not too long ago. We didn't have any baking soda. And I was like, are you sure you want to make them? She's like, yep. They came out and they were chocolate chip cardboard. (laughs) (laughs) And no one ate them. So you need all five in a proper amount. And uh, the first one is outcome focused. So most disciple making efforts in the church in America are content focused. It's like, if we can just most discipleship programs are a data dump. If we can just open up the top of people's skulls and pour in enough good content, they're going to be disciples. Well, no expression of the church in the history has poured more good content into more people. And how's that working for us? How many people really changed? How many people really multiplying disciples? So apparently a content focused way doesn't work. We need to shift and recognize 
you know, of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, Jesus accomplished our salvation. The Father ordained it, but the Spirit is the one who applies it. And when we say outcome focus, we need to be asking, what are the Spirit's outcomes? What, what are we actually looking for? And in the book, we unpack that Paul has two major areas, fruit of the Spirit and gifts of the Spirit, what we call character and calling. Character has to do with your ability to be intimate with God and intimate with other people. Calling has to do with your, your influence in the world. Uh, Character is about, uh, I have to be with Jesus and be like Jesus. Calling is about, I'm going to join Jesus. This is what I do to be a part of what Jesus is doing in the world. And character times calling equals impact. If you're growing in character and calling, they have a multiplying effect. So we, be, we begin to change the focus to the spirit's outcomes. And, and that's where the journey begins by going back to this is a partnership with the Holy Spirit. It's got to be spirit-led, spirit-empowered. And, and that's the first ingredient. The second one is habit-fueled. So I'm going to hand that to Lance. Like, Lance, what is the role that habits play in partnering with the Holy Spirit? I'm an old church guy. I, I grew up in the church. Bill, did you grow up in the church? I did. Okay. I did very early. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up in the days when we had Sunday school, right? So I remember it well. Yeah. You know, so Sunday school, you go to Sunday school from nine to 10, and then you go to the big service like at 11 or whatever. And um, so I grew up in that. And Within that, there was this embedding of the scriptures. There's actually a learning of the scriptures. In fact, there were habits that were kind of injected into you of reading the Bible. And, you know, we, uh, the statistics, you know, uh, Myron had read a, a, a Barna statistic earlier today that, uh, you know, is kind of like cold water in our face. And, uh, but the, the statistics of biblical illiteracy in in the evangelical church today are atrocious. People just don't know their scriptures. They don't know the Bible. And so uh, right there, that's one of these habits that we talk about in habit forms of different, that w- what will form you, your way of thinking. So, you know, uh, let's take Stephen Curry. Um, Stephen Curry didn't just drain three point bombs because he just shows up for the game, you know, an hour before the game. He spends hours and hours, thousands, literally thousands of hours since he was a little guy shooting baskets in practicing these three pointers. So what happens is these are spiritual habits that really help us to stay in tune with the Holy Spirit so that we can respond. One of the things that A.W. Tozer said was the thing that caused some Christians to stand out versus other Christians. He says that the standout Christians had um, perfected the art of spiritual response. And so they created these habits to respond to what the Holy Spirit was saying in the moment. And it comes about with different, uh, what we've called spiritual disciplines for the, over the years. But uh, quite often in our disciple making or our lack of disciple making, we've let those habits not be formed because we haven't, we haven't encouraged people to press into them. We haven't taught those habits. We haven't practiced those habits, but it has everything to do with whether we're going to obey the, or whether we're going to hear the spirit, much less obey the spirit and step into the things that the Lord's calling us to on a day-to-day basis. Amen. That's good. Yeah. And it's those habits that 
allow us to partner with the Holy Spirit and get into the outcomes of transformation and character and calling impact. The third ingredient ingredient is community forged. And Jesus had a particular way of ordering his relational world. He had a triad, which was the transparent space. He had the 12, which was a personal space. He had the 72, which is his social space. And then they ministered to the crowds, which is a public space. And then the most important space is like the bullseye at the, end, the, at the center of the target. And that was the divine space, his relationship with his father. And each one of these, so each one of these spaces has a different function in human flourishing and disciple making. And if we don't have all those spaces, uh, there is going to be a gap. Uh, so we talk about how do you, how do you make it outcome focused, habit fueled, begin to build in these different relational spaces. It needs to be mission fo- fixated. And in other words, the context for disciple making is not a classroom, it's actually mission. So you need to help everybody in that relational environment become more aware of where they've been sent. That you you don't have to cross a, an ocean or go through a jungle to be a missionary. You can cross your street or cross the gym or the cubicle. You don't have to leave your zip code to be on mission. That actually most of your mission is gonna happen where you live, work, learn, and play. And teaching simple rhythms or habits like begin in prayer, listen, eat, serve, story to be activated as a missionary. And then the last piece is content flavored. And we mean two things by this. Number one, the gospel has to be the flavor start to finish. The gospel is the nuclear engine. And then secondly, the content needs to be flavored for where people are at on their spiritual journey. So we provide a framework on how to mix these five ingredients in the proper amount inside of relational environments to create what we call intentional disciple-making environments. And I, I want to kick it over to Myron. And uh, Myron, if you can unpack what you're doing with five H's and how you're embedding that into relational environments to multiply disciples, I think it's an amazing embodiment of what we're talking here. Yeah. Um, well, when I look at the type of hope dealer we philosophically envision, um, mission is at the is mission is the, is the I mean, it's, we, it's robust. I mean, in terms of that's our focal point, but then also we want to see biblical, um, you know, literate, right? People who are able to rightly divide God's word and then they're spirit led, right? So we're we're like, there's this sense that we can hear God and it doesn't take a high priest um, to, you know, to make that happen. Um, and then there's a practical obedience that we're, that we're looking for, right? Teach them to obey. And then there's, and then there's this pastoral um, ethos that we want to see aimed throughout the body because, you know, we, we, we like to eradicate this idea that somehow the lead pastor's job is to, to primarily <laughs> uh, take care of everybody. So armed with that picture of a hope dealer, how we facilitate our relational environments is fivefold. Number one, we sit down and we're, we're always asking the question, hey, how'd you deal hope this last week? So I, I don't see myself as a lead pastor. I see myself as a lead facilitator. In fact, disciple making is that, right? We're, we're facilitators. 
We're trying to facilitate Christ being formed in us. And we have to do that by asking questions. And we see Jesus, the chief facilitator doing that. Who do man say that I am? Hey, what are we gonna do about this? These thousands of people who are, who are hungry? Question, right? And so when I asked the question, how, how are we going to, how, how'd you do hope this last week? What, what I'm not doing is placing an indictment on whether, on whether or not you've, on whether or not you've, you know, done it or not. It's a simple question, right? And then secondly, after we, we read a passage, right? The question is, okay, hey, how, how, would, how would you summarize this? And how would you do it in two words, right? I'm, I'm trying to get um, them to crystallize the passage, right? Not for information's sake, but for transformation's sake. And then I'm asking the question, hey, what would it what what did, what did God say in this? Like what is what is God one of our one of my one of my disciples right now who who's now beginning um you know his first pathway of uh, moving into the to, into the mission field uh, of young people in the inner city by by launching a business called Alliance Sports Training. Our early, some of our early times together, when I first said, hey, what, like, what, did you, what do you feel like God's saying to you? He, he must have looked at me like he saw a ghost. And later after our time together, he said, this is crazy. He said, I never thought that I could hear God. <laughs> He's like, I always thought it was the pastor's job to, to, to help me, right? And all I did was say, like, what is God saying to you? And now because he has, because he is learning the skill of listening to the spirit, right? God is helping him navigate how to integrate into a population of kids who are dying in our inner city, right? And then, and then to be able to ask the question, okay, and, and guys, we know none of this is rocket science. We, we looked at movements all over the world. These are questions that and practices that disciple making movements um, subscribe to, right? You know, like what, what is, what are you going to do about it? In obedience, obedience based disciple making, yeah. right? And then lastly, how can we pray for you? How can we, how can we be the church? How can we assist you? How can we, right? And, and, and armed with this, with these five questions, I'm telling you, it is a game changer because all of a sudden we, we start to see like, like that disciple making is simple and messy. Yeah. And God is invited us into it. And Myron, you're doing that. Describe the relational environment where you're mixing those ingredients. Like, is it, um, you know, what does that look like? How many people are in a group? Yeah. So, 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 yeah, this is good. So remember when I said Roman Empire, rabbinical cadre of leaders, cadre of followers? I realize I'm charismatic. So I can use that to build a big church. Or I can use it to mobilize the church. I've decided to do that. 
I've decided that we're going to repurpose our our family gatherings on Sundays. We're, we're using it, right? We didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I wanted to, but I would have I would have destroyed everything. So guess what we did? We turned our roles into circles. So we we like <laughs> we we said we went on Amazon and got tables, right? Because when when somebody comes in, we are we're already sending a message. We're sending a message that you're not here to be entertained. Right. You're here to experience Christ as Lord with us together. You're here to fellowship and community with one another. And then we're, we're here to, to be mobilized into the mission of God of every inner city. Amen. We don't use the language of like we don't even use the language of we don't use the word like worship. Because people associated with a building. So we give instruction. And we say, hey, we're going to sing together. Right. I'm going to speak. I've leveled the playing field. I don't use the word teach or preach because because somehow somehow somebody professional have to do that. Right. So I speak or others speak and then around tables with food and intergenerational kids, adults, teenagers. Right. We ask the five H's. And, 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 and we've already had people be like, oh man, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going back to that. Those are the church people. We're like, cool. We're not for you then. We're like, we're not, we're not the right. Cause, cause I, I'm, I'm just personally, I know that as a leader, I'm going to be held accountable to the King. And when I stand before him, I don't want to be known as the one who, um, like the one who was complicit in consumerism, but I want to hear this. You were faithful to the Great Commission and you were faithful to disciple making. And so the reason why I tell that story is because sometimes it's easy to hear, oh, y'all like y'all just, you know, y'all just beating up on the <laughs> on the current model. No, no, we're not. Um, but to actually repurpose and leverage the, the what we have so that the great commission and disciple making can be what we're essentially complicit in. Does that make sense? Uh, that, that is so good. That is so good. And, and we're, we're nearing the end of our time here and we got a couple of things we want to do, but I, ha I had two questions come in that I'm going to kind of put together. And, and you've touched on, on these two questions. So the one is, what is the role of the senior pastor? You know, what, what is the role of the lead pastor? Is it, is, you know, does he lead the disciple making process, that sort of thing. And what, what advice would you give a church that, that truly wants to make this transition? What, what are the first steps that you would tell them to make besides get the book? <laughs> I, you know, I would, if disciple making is the irreducible, irreplaceable core task of the church, then it means it's a call for all of God's people. Mm -hmm. And so the lead pastor um, I think where the change starts is I would say, find your 12, hmm. you know, and Myron has developed his vision. It's a hope dealer. It's contextualized for his context. He can unpack it. He's got the five H's. So he knows he's got the right kind of habits. They're doing it in community. They've got three and 12 and the larger 72 and 
they have these different social spaces. They've got the right content. It's fueled by the gospel. Um, but he's catalyzing a disciple making movement by having, he's making hope dealers who then also go on to make hope dealers who also go on to make hope dealers. And so I just encourage every lead pastor. It really does start with you. And that's, what's cool. You don't have to change a bunch of stuff in your system. It's like yeast in the dough. Start with you with 12. And like Myron said, you'll have to look at your schedule and go, okay, I got to say no to some things. Let me figure out what those things are. And what's interesting is about, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago, God said the same thing to me. I have a teaching gift. I have an academic bent. I'd spend 20, 25 hours a week sometimes on a message. And the Lord, the Lord told me, it's like, you can do a day or a day and a half. So you can do eight to 10 hours of sermon prep. That's it. And then I want you to give the other 10 to 15 hours to disciple making and leadership development. And that was a game changer. So I'll hand it to Lance. Well, and the only thing I would add, because I know we're running out of time, but I, I think one of the things is we sometimes we get overwhelmed. We think that's going to take a lot of time. It's not going to take near as much time. It is going to take some choices like Rob just said, and it's going to take some rearranging. But think in terms more of, um, of alignment rather than addition to your schedule. Mm-hmm. The key to what Jesus did with disciple making was says he went and chose 12 to be with him. And that literally means he invited them into his life. Hey, guys, I'm watching Final Four tonight. Want to come over? Uh, hey, uh, I got to make a, a drive, you know, to St. Louis. Uh, hey, won't you guys go with me? You know, if you start inviting people just to come and become part of your life, we usually think in terms of, oh, uh, I'm going to invite them to this Bible study or I'm going to invite them to this book study or I'm going to invite all that's great. All that's good. All that's. But Jesus invited them to be a part of his life. That's what real disciple making is. That's the essence of it. If it's not that, it's not disciple making. So uh, think in terms of alignment more than just be getting overwhelmed with addition when it comes to your schedule. That's really good. That's really good. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it was in uh, Dave Ferguson and Warren Bird writing Hero Maker and researching that book. We don't know exactly how Jesus spent his time because not all of it is captured, but what God chose to capture for us in the gospel, 73% of his time is spent with some iteration mm. of the world. Yeah. And I think there's something we need to, to take. Amen. So, guys, thank you so much. Hey, um, if when you get the book, if you're like me, I love this at the back. There's this, like, I love, like, in a journey, I like to see the whole journey and then come back and, you know, do so. At, hey, at Bill, back. if yeah. you read the introduction carefully, we say, if you want to see the map, turn to the end now. Well, <laughs> I'm too you must not have read very carefully. <laughs> I'm too anxious to get into the meat of the book. I'm not going to spend time with an introduction. Let me get into the meat of the book. Now, this, this book, it releases tomorrow. And what's the website? Too. It's the, the starfishinthespirit.com. Starfishinthespirit.com. And I think Brooks has probably already put that in the chat for you too. But guys, uh, um, so grateful for you and for your love for the church, your love for the kingdom. And uh, uh, know that this is a, a passion for each one of you and, and grateful for the way you're, yeah. you're living it out. And uh, thanks, for, thanks for letting me join you. Oh, thanks, Bill. Thank you, Bill. And everybody. Thanks, Myron. Thanks, guys. Thank you.